everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm your co-host, Christopher Harrington. Joined from the state of New York, his Uber driver got him back. He was able to wrestle twice this weekend, but he still showed up for work today. He's none other than the no-cow, oh boy, hit soy himself, Mr. Brandon Howard Thurston. Brandon, how are you doing today? I'm great. Mookie's just eaten a delicious vegan protein bar. He's now energized. He's now in recovery mode from his uh, rigorous workout that he had earlier when we were talking about WWE attendance. But uh, the, the protein cells are, uh, are are rebuilding his muscles and rebuilding his brain. So we're we're really in a so good place right now. I'm I'm at <laughs> I'm at uh, Brandon Thurston's cage match page right now. Oh, are where you? I learned that he is. 170 centimeters and 81 kilograms. Wow. I learned that uh, he is both a singles and tag team wrestler with 14 years of experience, and his signature move is the souple. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah, so I, 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 I was doing it in Exploder. I'd still do it, but uh, I don't know what my finish. I guess my finisher is really an arm bar now. But, uh, yeah, I was, I, uh, the suplex. Because we had a, we had a commentator at, the, at a time in ESW who sounded very much like Gordon Soley, I felt. So I wanted to hear him say souple, so I named my, my finisher the souple. And uh, it does mention you've trained Frankie Feathers, the Silent Warrior, and Steve Gage. Mm, I would not say that I've trained the, trained the Silent Warrior. Uh, I somewhat trained Steve Gage. I somewhat trained Frankie Feathers, but they're not like they're they're all like pre Grapplers Anonymous wrestlers although they although well, they do come to grapplers sometimes silent warrior credits robbie e pepper parks blackjack phoenix and brandon thurston i think i think he did a seminar with do you know who the silent warrior is no um, i've never heard of this person uh, a very nice guy he's a, he's a he's a deaf wrestler who has wrestled in japan okay. i believe he has been ranked in the pwi 500 um i, I don't know how active he is now but yeah he's he's, he's had some matches Interesting. Okay. Well, you had some matches this weekend. You uh, wrestled in probably Rochester, Rockport maybe, on uh, Friday, and then uh, in Erie on Saturday. Is that right? I wrestled on Friday in Rockport for Ron Falco Promotions, also known as IWF. And uh, I wrestled Sean Carr in a street fight. Oh, this is great. I, I wrestled in jeans. I, so I took, um, you know, when you, when you wrestle in a street fight. I think I complained about that for the street fight that they were having uh, with Joey Janela mm. and Adam Page. Yes. And you responded to me, if you're going to have this many people looking at you, yeah. you're wearing gear. Yeah, if I'm Joey Janela and I'm going to be seen by the largest audience I've ever been seen by, it, I'm not going to do anything but wear my best gear. Um, but yeah, but so I wore, I wore, I still wore my gear though. See, so I wore, put on jeans first, then I put on my trunks over the jeans, and then I put on <laughs> knee pads. <laughs> kick pads and wrestling shoes and uh custom kick pads okay not just generic off a of high spots kick pads but custom kick pads and uh yeah and i and i fought this street fight against sean carr from binghamton and uh we we had a, a good match we we uh we I, there were caution sh- signs involved there was there was a moment where he threw me outside and sat me in a chair and gave me the kicks to the face in the corner of the guardrail to which i of course responded by by you know, getting on the offense, putting him in the corner of the guardrail, and running the the walker into into his midsection. Oh my! So that was that was a unique offense, innovative offense that I was coming up with there. But uh, he won in the end. It was a, a good, solid match. We we uh, you know, I think the what, fans what, enjoyed. What could it. he have possibly done to you to to make it so that you can't have a legitimate professional wrestling match, but instead we're forced to to result to chicanery such as a street fight? 
Well, uh, I, I I thought he wasn't going to come out at first. I came out and I did a promo and said, you know, he's last I heard he's not in the building, and this was this is a, one of the biggest matches of my career. Big money we're talking here, and I thought I was about to win by forfeit. So, a lot of money on the table here. A lot a lot of uh, things involved, but uh, you know, he he did come out and surprise me, and uh, which is really the only way that he was able to win. That's a good point. Were you, is your neck healed? I, I understand you've been forced to wrestle several times with a, so, a bad neck. As, as I told the fans there in Brockport, I have a, a note from my doctor. My doctor said that I have to wear this neck collar as a precaution. Thanks, Obama. Yeah. And then, so I had to wear it as a precaution. And uh, and and a lot of people don't believe me that I'm really injured there. A lot of, a lot of kids are, are in disbelief over this. They're not, they're not well, respectful. They should, they should have to look at your medical records like I do before every show here. We do uh, we do impact testing to make sure that you're ready. You have recall mm-hmm. and uh, ability to remember what we're going to talk about in every show. That's right. But uh, yeah, I'm, And I'm, then I'm, you went to Erie the next day and, and wrestled in a, in a multi-man tag match? I went to Erie the next day in the Patron Saints of Professional Wrestling, the Erie chapter. We were victorious uh, over now the, the Now, the way it works, right, is that in a, a singles match, each of you gets to split the amount of money you earn. But in a in an eight-man tag match, that means each of you only gets one-eighth as much, right? It, uh, we all have indiv- individual agreements. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, that must be a, a lot of spreadsheets there for the promoter to have to go through and cross-reference and then have all your direct deposit numbers so that he can take out the FICA taxes and then pay you. Yeah, who who, know, who knows what, what how, how that's really done, but yeah, I would say so. <laughs> good, good. And you were victorious, so so you were able to slap snap your losing streak very quickly. Yes. Well, I also uh, competed on Friday. I was uh, in a, yet another improv competition, and uh, I was not victorious. Uh, that's in a fact, shame. it was a uh, a odd showing for us. Our coach showed up like fifteen minutes late and did not apologize to us for kind of wasting a lot of our time and then went into a very esoteric idea for what he wanted us to do that night. Oh. And uh, it was it was not well received by the audience. No. It was it was as well received as one can make it well received. Oh. But um it was it was one of those where I enjoy doing the show because I think it's funny and it's fresh and this ended up being artistic and archaic. What was and, his idea? Uh, oh it had to do with silent word gathering and scene generation and just it was a lot of like in long form a lot of times you 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 have a structure for how you do a form and the structure that we used for this form was was very weird and so it's funny for the audience but it's funny like haha this is weird not like haha i find this enjoyable Mm -hmm. and uh it's a little bit of a competition where you're trying to win the audience over and so there's also a part of me that's just like if you it's like going up and being like i will do I will do advanced. I will do a magic square for this talent show. Do you know what a magic square is? No. What's a magic square? That's, that's where you, you, you have a, a number like a four by four or five by five. And you'll be like, yell out a number and they'll yell it out. And then you'll, you'll create a square all around that number. So that every direction, when you add up the verticals, the diagonals or the, the horizontals, they add up to the same number. It's a magic square. Oh, wow. Yeah. And and you've you've used all different numbers all over the square too. Like you can't just write the same number over and over again. Mm. So um, yeah, it's 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 an old timey mathematical trick that is not really that entertaining. Mm. But you could say yes, it has a value because it's it's a thing. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like the form of improv we were doing. Okay. 
<laughs> so I was a little disappointed in the end. And I brought my friend who who uh, normally does short form. And uh, tonight she was she was coming along to do some long form. And I thought this is going to be a real big pick me up for her. And uh, she just like had a, a rough time with the, the coach. And it was just one of those where it's just like, yeah, that didn't go so well. Mm-hmm. And and you know, it just it's frustrating, not just for me, but when someone else is kind of coming along to see if they like this or not. Mm-hmm. And then it's it's a very negative experience compared to all the other times. It's been pretty good. Mm-hmm. It's it sounds like when you're an indie wrestler and, and the the promoter pressures you to sell tickets, but then the rest of the show is not that good. Or imagine if they pressure you to sell tickets and then they're like, you're going to be in this battle royal, but here's the gimmick of this battle royal. It's not a normal battle royal, and then they give you something that's even worse. It's a reverse battle royal. Yeah, or it's a weapons battle royal or mm. whatever. You're just like, I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. So I did the best I could, and uh, that was that. And it's not about winning or losing, but it's just more like if you're not having fun in the show that you're doing and you're not getting a lot out of it, then it's hard sometimes to be excited for the audience. And what I hate the most is when I feel like the audience is not getting their money's worth because ultimately that they're the ones I care about the most. Right. Is are they getting their money's worth for seeing a show? And did we deliver on what we said we'd do or did we do something artistic just to entertain ourselves that no one really cares about mm. enough navel gazing? Mm. Anyways, uh, we're not here to talk about that. We're going to talk about All In uh, a lot. That's pretty much the show here. It's going to be the All In show about All In Economics. Um, we got an interview with The Ringer, Mike Pellucci, uh, giving us a really great discussion of an article he wrote for TheRinger.com all about Cody Rhodes, about Young Bucks, and specifically about the All In show. But he's also written other pieces in the past about the other two groups and a really nice insight about what it was like being a professional sports journalist coming to this event. And also uh, a, a crazy story about PCO that was one that I, I didn't really take in before this. So I really enjoyed that. So but, stay tuned. That'll be on after we're, uh, Mookie and I are done talking here. Yeah, so please, please stick around and listen to that. Uh, but we want to talk about all in economics. And uh, Dave Meltzer was able to get a Wrestling Observer newsletter out this week uh there was i think some question in dave's mind whether he was going to be able to do that if you're a subscriber to the premium show which you can sign up at russellomics.com you can hear when brandon and mookie met dave Meltzer, and what what thing did dave Meltzer do when he first found out that brandon and and mookie were in the same lobby as him the answer will shock you but uh, you'll have to sign up for that $5 a month, uh, get access to everything, including a, a giant spreadsheet I just did about a year's worth of WWE attendance where I went through all the observers and cross-referenced it. Mm-hmm. But uh, the other thing that was in the observer and, this and, week was, And if you become a, a, a subscriber for WrestleNomics Premium, you'll not just hear us talk about the attendance spreadsheet, but you'll have access to the attendance spreadsheet, right? Yes, you get access to all our notes every week. So you don't even have to listen to the show. You can just go through our notes mm-hmm. and just imagine how... Mookie and Brandon would make this one page take an hour to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, but the All in Economics got published this week, and some interesting numbers coming from Dave here. Uh, what was our live gate for the 11,000-plus people that were there? According to the Observer, 458525 American dollars. So, and uh, do we know what the, the attendance number that they're selling the T-shirt for says now? Oh, I don't recall. It's 11,000-something. Yeah, what is it? Let's see here. Young Bucks Twitter. I'm, I've, it's been showing up in my tweet, uh, my 
as a promoted tweet on Twitter over and over and over again. Really? So wow. I feel like it should be 11263. Okay. Mm. So it was 11263. And here we've got a live gate of 458, 525, 11263 works out to $40.71 per ticket. Um, the reality is a lot of people, ourselves included, spent more than that uh, <laughs> by buying the tickets on the secondary market yes. where they were marked up anywhere from five to 15 yeah. times as much as yeah. they were selling I've, I've avoided thinking about what we actually spent on tickets. Yeah. Uh, what was funny was the guy in front of us literally turned around and said, did you buy your tickets on vividseats.com? And we said, yes. Uh, did you also? He goes, no, I work for them. <laughs> I said, okay, cool. So yeah, vividseats.com. They got us our tickets. I think it was cheaper than uh, what StubHub and some of the other people were selling it for. And yeah. uh, I, I was, I thought it was worth it. I was, I was really happy. Oh. We had terrific seats actually in the end. Yeah, I mean, as far as a, I, I, I guess, well, like what I, what what connects with me most, I guess, as, as a wrestling viewer, is is now like not just great matches, which there were, but uh, it's, it was a historic show. I think this is a show we're going to look back on years from now, and as a big watermark, you know, threshold moment in, in, in wrestling history. So. And I'm just quickly pulling up WWE's uh, 10K to say what their average ticket price is. Their average North American ticket price last year for the year of 2017 was $58.68. Hmm. So that is meaning that this all-in show was was maybe, uh, let's see here, 58.68 was about, you know, 70% as much. Yeah. So. Tickets, tickets in theory could have been uh, certainly uh, what's that ratio? Fifty-eight over forty, almost forty-five percent higher. Yeah. Probably almost fifty percent higher, like, and you would have still sold out the show, yeah. in my opinion. They, they, they could have, at been. the very least, they could have charged WWE pay-per-view prices for this. Yeah, I think so. So um, that's going to be a lesson for them in all in two. But the answers there, eleven two sixty-three in the in the building, of which I'm sure at least a hundred or more of those people were probably comp people. Um, you know, between the media pass row and other people that were getting in through through Conrad Steele or whatever it was going to be, because there was a couple of boxes there that I think people could kind of mill around in. Yeah, I, I think um, on, the, on being the elite, the which is this forty seven minute being the elite, was where they uh, show all this behind the scenes stuff about all in, which was very interesting. I think at one point, the Cody and the Bucks are sitting in the seats and they're they're very insistent that there are no comps, no comps. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> well. I think there were some media access access tickets, and I, I I know for a fact I spoke with at least four people that weekend who did not pay for their ticket. So mm. I don't know whether that's an accurate thing to say. Um, but uh, merchandise, Dave wrote, every item sold out, no finite numbers on this. So uh, just imaginary numbers. So I assume it was the square root of a negative number at some point. Someone's credit card triggered a, uh, a null set error. But um, we talked about it. I had predicted going into the show that merch numbers were going to be enormous, 10,000 people, 50 bucks a head. That's half a million dollars. That's more than the live gate. What, what does but, this mean, every item sold out? I think what he means by that is every shirt that they printed Who's they? that was an all-in shirt or sweatshirt would have sold out. Which, again, that's an interesting claim because I still saw them being sold on Sunday. What does this mean, though? So every – I mean everybody – I'm sure there were – wrestlers at StarCast who still had some shirts left over. It doesn't mean that everyone, if you were there, you sold every item that you had? No, I think what they mean is every shirt that was brought to the arena, the Sears Center. At the venue itself, at, at the Sears Center itself. 
with sold the, with, out. With and, the, and when we walked in, there was this enormous line, and everybody yeah. thought it was like a meet and greet, or like you know, Mick Foley was 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 uh, handing out sacos or something. Okay. But it turned out just to be the merch stand. Okay, so this and, is not about Starcast yet. There were two merch stands in the Sears Center, yes, only two. Yes, yeah. So um, no, in fact, that's why I say I, I swear at Starcast the next day they still were selling shirts yeah. out in the middle of the lobby. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, and, and, you know, for instance, I know that the NWA came with a lot of T-shirts to sell. Mm-hmm. And Dave Lagana did not indicate to me that he had sold every one of his T-shirts. Mm-hmm. Um, it said the Fight Network, or, or F-I-T-E, they, quote, grossed more than a million dollars between StarCast and all-in pay-per-view sales. So, so Fight uh, was think, behind StarCast. Yeah, so I think that's important to kind of think about. So what does that mean? Well... Uh, $40 for all in. So if you, if you gross only a million dollars and it was all, all in, then that would be about 25,000 purchases. And if we consider that the Starcast event, while interesting, had a much higher price point and probably was, you know, disproportionate amount of interest, you know, you could maybe imagine maybe a thousand people buying Starcast at a hundred bucks and 24 thousand people buying all in so we're talking starcast tickets what, what exactly were they buying though they're buying access to certain all meet, those meet panels and yeah and panels so you watch the death of wcw panel and the bruce pritchard roast and the the four-star summit with wade keller and brian alvarez and and uh bruce mitchell and dave Meltzer. and does this include access to, to cody and the bucks and things like marty squirrels karaoke and all that or is that a separate Mm, I bet you the karaoke probably wasn't streamed because of uh, copyright issues. Hmm. Um, I, I doubt they wanted to stream, you know, music that that would be <laughs> over a live service. That sounds like a headache. But I think a lot of the other panels. In fact, I, I think the uh, I heard the wrestle crap. I'm sorry, not the wrestle crap. The um, Botchamania panel. That was the issue. Is that they had to make sure all the footage was going to be something that they could actually stream. Hmm. Um, but yeah, that's that sort of stuff, uh, as far as I know. I have no idea if things like the Macaulay Culkin, you know, podcast taping, whether that was streamed or not. Okay. Those would have been the sort of things. But anyways, so you would guess that would suggest somewhere between maybe 20,000 and 25,000 buys for all in as an IP per view, mm-hmm. considering the fact that they're asking you to pay $40, yeah. but then they're telling you, Hey, you can get it through the honor club or you can get it through new Japan world at some point for free that's going to greatly diminish that universe that you have to buy from. Right? And it's been on NGPW world uh, for quite a few days now. Yeah. So it, that's my point is that it, it's much harder with this kind of crowd. The, the crossover between new Japan fans and all in fans is pretty darn high. And uh, uh, mm-hmm. the number of people with new Japan world subscriptions was probably pretty darn high. But then again, I, I, I believe there's a lot of value in watching that live. Um, oh, absolutely. And so, I mean the 25,000 by number, which I'm estimating it at is a, a heck of a lot lower than what did I say eighty thousand yes. during our um our show, but is is still a, a decent number. I mean, we're gonna go to the ratings here, and they're gonna say that they did about two hundred thousand viewers for the WGN Zero Hour. Mm-hmm. So that's about ten percent, which is 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 not that far off. Where if you think about old WWE when they could have you know three million uh, viewers, and ten percent of that's three hundred thousand, and that was kind of the range of a very good. Uh, uh, Pay per view. For a comparison, I think Wrestle Kingdom was it ten? The 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 Wrestle Kingdom in 2015 with Jr. on commentary, Okada, Tanahashi uh, in the main event. That did, I believe, and Jeff Jarrett and Jeff Jeff, Jeff, GFW 
you know, co-promoting it or whatever, uh, 10,000 buys, I believe is the number. So this, this did about double of that. Yes. And it was in, you know, a, a better time slot and a much more mainstream appeal in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, certainly, uh, proving that there's still a viability. I mean, when you're doing a million dollars, anytime you talk about doing a million dollars of anything, that's going to get people to sit up and notice you. Yeah. So the fact one weekend for a non-WWE show could do a million dollars worth of, of streaming business, that's a big deal. Hmm. You know, They probably made more on this weekend than uh, Flow Sports did in their entire run. F- Flow Slam did in their entire run. Yeah, probably. We could do the math, but yeah. I mean, it, it would be <laughs> – I'm sure they. I'm sure they. They were able to be profitable <laughs> in a way that Flow Slam probably never could be. Um, yeah. you know, uh, what Dave wrote was that Starcast sold eleven thousand tickets. We know there was about eleven thousand people at the uh, the show. I didn't buy a Starcast ticket, but I was at Starcast for you know hanging out and doing stuff. Yeah, you could, you could, you could walk you into out there. you could walk into Starcast, which we did without paying any admission, and you could still. I I mean, you you were there. Uh, earlier than I was, right? You 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 were there, and you're telling me all about it. But you could you could walk walk up and meet people and get autographs and buy merch, buy merchandise, right? Without even paying for whatever access that others were paying for, right? Yeah, most areas had extra tables set up. Now, if you wanted to do a meet and greet with the Bucks, or if you wanted to go to a panel discussion, you needed uh, a wristbands to get into that. You needed a wristband even to get into like the dealer room where they were selling stuff. But yet there was other tables that were being set up where you were selling stuff. So it, it was a, it was a real uh, hodgepodge. So, so that's that's strange. Like you had to pay for access to even get into an area where you could then buy certain things. I was really confused by that. And as you'll hear in the interview with Mike, uh, there there was sometimes people who were able to circumvent the rules. And uh, in in my conversation uh, I did with Wade Keller, uh, which you can hear on the Wade Keller Pro Wrestling Podcast. Uh, talking about all in, Wade has a fantastic story all about Buff Bagwell. Did you hear the Bagwell story? Yeah, I heard, I heard there was some sort of disagreement with Buff about what he was to be paid. So his and res- how he was to be paid, and whether he was allowed to just take, say, a box of money well, and leave. Well, the way the way I heard it is his, his response to not to uh, to uh, to his deal not working out the way he thought it was supposed to work out was that he picked up a box that contained either either cash itself or or, or other items that were valuable, and he, he, he attempted to walk away with them. Not only attempted to walk away with him, jump into an SUV was the way it was described. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so there was a lot of interesting things there. But it, it sounds like Conrad really uh, – Conrad Thompson, who promoted this event, originally it was it was very much, you know, kind of focused as a podcasting event is my understanding. It was, it was seen as a podcast convention. You could argue a lot of the personalities from that podcast per convention were wrestling personalities. So, you know, when it's Tony Schiavone and Bruce Pritchard and people like that, they yeah. are wrestling personalities who also have podcasts. Mm-hmm. And then over time, it grew to be this meet and greet with different wrestling personalities. And then you could even say it pivoted a little bit from being a podcasting convention to more like a panel, more like a WrestleCon convention where it's a little bit more focused on, you know, meet the wrestlers, ICP is going to come and do something and so forth. And a little bit less of the, uh, you know, it's about you WrestleNomics being a, being a focus here and meeting your fans, which is all right. Cause I, I don't think there's a viable economic model necessarily just for, Hey, WrestleNomics is going to go podcast in a room and you can go meet them. Yeah. But at the same time, it kind of became all things to all people, which means logistically it became a nightmare for Conrad Thompson 
who had to go as far as setting up like kind of tents in the back of this hotel for there to be, you know, people meeting there and have security at all hours to kind of look at everyone's uh, wristbands and, and to have, you know, meet and greet lines that literally were winding around the hotel lobby in such a way that we were podcasting and there would be like a line of people just kind of standing in front of us, just trying to wait to get to the next thing. Because you have to show up early and stand in line, and then there's different tiers of you know badges. So, oh, did platinum get called? I get to go into the platinum room, and then for the weigh-ins, the room got too full, and so people were fighting over you know. Well, I thought I was guaranteed entry, but they didn't oh, wow. show up in time. And huh. yeah, it, it 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 was a logistical headache. I wouldn't call it a nightmare because I don't think it was a nightmare. It was a logistical headache. Same with food. Same with drink. You know, the bar wasn't open very late. Um, and, and it was just the sort of thing where I think there's a lot of learnings. And I think originally Conrad might have said, I don't want to do this again. But I think I wouldn't be surprised if he did get talked into doing it again in the future. Or if someone else steps up and really says, hey, I learned a lot from that. Here's what I want to do. Um, anytime you're bringing in really divisive personalities in my mind, like a Bruce Pritchard or a Eric uh, Bischoff. Eric Bischoff. R- Russo was there too, wasn't he? Uh, I don't think Russo ended up being there. Okay. I, I, I don't think Russo attended, but I could be wrong on that. Or even a Dave Meltzer, you know, where he's going to attract, you know, strong feelings from people Yeah. about what, what his role is in things. Uh, I have to say Dave was wonderful to us. I enjoyed meeting him. I always enjoy hearing him. Yeah. But I can understand people are going to have strong feelings and they're going to have strong. But the fact that you are a, a journalist or media covering an event and then at the same time, you may or not may not be getting paid and or generating revenue to be at that event, right? Because if you're you're a panelist on something that they're selling for pay per view, you're generating revenue for this event. And then you may or may not have had your hotel room paid to be part of this event. Yeah, you may or may not be paying to get into this event. Mm-hmm. You know, buying the tickets. You may or may not be paying to get tickets to all in. So I can understand how some people are going to say, "Well, this isn't fair." Wrestling, um, wrestling me has been fully co-opted now, right? I hate this co-opted word. I think it's so silly because it pretends, A, there was ever a time that there wasn't, you know, conflicts of interest in wrestling. A carny business filled with carny people talking about carny decisions. Um, I, I, don't, I don't see it as bad. Is this that much, much different from how other sports are covered? Or I don't, I don't know if, if you want to go for, away from sports, how, how other things are covered by media? Like access. Well, I mean, I think listen to what Mike talks about in terms of how he he acted and was treated. It's not uncommon to give journalists an area they're allowed to sit in mm-hmm. and report on your event, mm-hmm. and they do not pay for the tickets. And sometimes they do get access to talk to the performers, and that's just part of the deal that people seem to make around what it means to promote a show in this day and age. Whether it's a football game, which is a show, it's entertainment, or whether it's a news conference. Um. I think it gets a little fuzzier when you're doing things like a Hall of Fame banquet and then you're asking people to show up and you're selling tickets. I think in those situations, if you're asking people to generate money for you with your name, there is there they for their time. And if that might mean maybe their accommodations are, are, are provided, that's fine. You sh- I think there should be more disclosure. And that's always what I've pointed the finger at a lot of people is that they're very lazy with sourcing and disclosure. Yes. Yes, we we were not. Uh, no, no one paid for uh, your hotel uh, that I well, I slept on your couch. I paid for my hotel. I hope. Well, Otherwise, I mean, I will probably get a legal action in the news. <laughs> I mean, you paid for it. Uh, we paid for our own transportation there. Yes, I yeah. I would say the people paid for it because uh, through our Patreon yes. at WrestleMimics.com, 
we received money and I was able to gather several months of money for us to pay for tickets and yes. hotels. We, we paid for our own tickets. But we bought our own tickets, like I said, on vividseats.com. And uh, yeah, it was it, it was all fine. And it wasn't something where I felt like, oh, I'm entitled to get free tickets. Because at the same time, while I write for different wrestling websites, I do not actively write, nor was I pitching stories. Mm-hmm. If I got free tickets, I do think there should have been an obligation that I was going to report like a reporter. Yeah. Or as a columnist or as a journalist or something. Yeah, uh, It would have been quite a headache for me. To do that i was really happy to do this as my own thing yeah. but you know i sat and had breakfast with um some wonderful people from russell zone mm-hmm. uh at our hotel and you know talking about you know i was there just you know tweeting out uh play-by-play of some of these events and i said i bet you that's a lot easier than you know actually trying to make sense of some of the carny things these people are saying on stage yeah i think, um, I think one of the tensions here at least for people like us who don't do this for a full-time job is that is is this a job? Do we have responsibilities? Is this just a hobby? What are we doing here? And and many of the people, I mean, obviously not not in the case of the the observer and the torch. They're, they've been doing this full time for decades. Uh, but it's like it's a lot of untrained, you know, amateur podcasters or whatever who you know we don't you don't I don't know fully understand what their well, and then what, what happens obligations when it flips are around and suddenly an article is just a series of people's tweets. Mm-hmm. Where all you've done is aggregate other people's content, and now you get paid to write an article about that. Yeah. Or you're writing articles uh, critiquing someone's Instagram post. Yeah. Yeah, it's a different form of media and a different system, and it's it's tough to really know what that is because it, ultimately, a lot of the media is built on clicks, and so you could argue if it gets a click, that's that's business, and you've done it right. And someone else would say, well, that's not news. You're not doing reporting. Now you're just doing you know kitten pictures. Mm-hmm. And so that I, I struggle with that sometimes is, is wrestling kitten pictures. And, you know, that would be the kind of, of thing that I would love for a StarCast panel to be. Yes. Yeah. You know, is wrestling aggregators destroying our business? Is there credibility in the future of, of wrestling journalism? Or like what, um, what, what are our responsibilities when we produce this sort of uh, content that is commentary on pro wrestling? What, what are the responsibilities that uh, people like us have or people like Dave Meltzer have? Specifically around disclosure, I think is the big one Hmm. is that, you know, and and that's not to say I haven't been given free tickets. I've been given free tickets to shows many times. So you want disclosure about any, any free stuff you're given, any access you're given? I I think truthfully, it does color the way I act about something when I get it for free. Mm -hmm. Right. Because your standards are lower. I am always more, less critical. Yeah. When I know that I have a friend involved or there. And that's why I've said many times that I am co-opted, that I am I am not impartial, and that I am a biased person. Um, but I will say that that I have very much so, you know, right now I should say I'm wearing an NWA T-shirt Dave Lagana gave for me for free. Mm-hmm. I will be very clear about that. Dave gave it to me for free. I tried to buy it from him. Unfortunately, they didn't take credit cards. The ATM at that hotel was broken. The ATM at my hotel did not exist. The ATM at the ball store to my hotel uh, gave me invalid transaction. Then called my bank called me for fraud alert. I called my bank back. I cleared it out. The next day, they emailed my wife saying I had fraud alert. I tried it again. It did not work. I could not get cash. <laughs> so I ended up getting cash at Target when you and I went out that mm-hmm. night. 
So I tried very hard to buy my NWA t-shirt, but Dave, out of the kindness of his heart, gave me one. So I, I will disclose that. So from now on, all my NWA coverage is now tainted, much in the same way that all of Dave's WWF coverage is tainted forever because he once took a little bit of consulting money from them about Japanese talent back in the late 80s. And in the case of NWA, like we, we've had Dave gone on here twice, and you know we, we obviously didn't pay him or anything for that. He came on to, to talk. And, and to promote NWA. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is I, but I would also argue mo I mean, I guess we made money on the, for the most part where, you know, I do think there's a difference that we, when you're we, selling, you cut out, you, you, we made money on what the premium podcast, having Dave as a guest, yeah. Yeah. you could argue people subscribed. It added to the value. Yeah. But I would always say it's a lot different than when like you're holding a banquet and you're going to say so-and-so is going to be the featured speaker. Yeah. You know, I've been to political events where Bill Clinton's a featured speaker, right? Mm -hmm. The money for that table so that people can go. And mm -hmm. you would make a pretty strong argument that some degree of people are going to that because of the speaker who's going to be there. Mm -hmm. Some are donating to the organization. Some are just going to be able to go there. But it, it makes a difference. And so I, I do feel like if you're selling an event and you're putting people on the marquee, then you should either be paying them or make it really clear what they get for an exchange for that. Because it seems like you're lending your credibility and your name to some other person's business. Yeah. We went way off on a tangent here, but the point I was trying to start with was the fact that StarCast sold a hell of a lot of tickets. Dave wrote 11,000. Conrad said 8,000 in the Ringer article. When we talked to Wade Keller uh, during the weekend, he, he told me he only thought it was 4,000 reality was that place was packed there's people there there's lots of people who i think went to stuff at starcast who could not get all in tickets yeah um, probably so, I, so i'm not surprised to see that the starcast number the all-in number are somewhat close to each other um and if there's no starcast then, if there's another all-in i think if, if it's not starcast if it's not conrad thompson doing it there's obviously an opportunity for someone to do something and make a lot of money doing it and, and you should, because to offset the cost of all the appearances for these people, it makes a lot of sense if the Bucks and Cody and people can show up and do meet and greets. Yeah. ton of money generated there. If you think about just 25 people and 100 people in a line, mm -hmm. you know, that's 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 $2,500. And that's nothing compared to what I know the Bucks and Cody were getting for people in their lines. Mm-hmm. You know, just tons and tons and tons of money, thousands and thousands of dollars. And that's why people like ROH do meet and greets before their shows um, is there's value to that. That's why WWE does meet and greets. You know, there, there's a lot of values for people doing that sort of thing. But, yeah, I definitely think uh, the venue for that is not the wrestling show. The venue for that is something outside of the wrestling show. Can, can we go back and talk about the, the live gate for a second? Uh, you know, the, this battle royal was billed as the over budget battle royal, which, which sort of suggests that they're going to be losing money on this event. Do you think they spent... Not only that, I think Cody and them talked about paying indie wrestlers three or four times their normal rate yeah. to be on the show. Like, Especially, they said some guys would tell us a number and we'd be like, we're not going to pay you that. Right, we're that... going to pay you four times that number. Yeah, that's in the All, All Us uh, video. So do you think this is at even a half a million dollars, almost half a million, you know, uh, $450,000? This is a money-losing event? Well... I, I know with Starcast and everything, that, I know those individuals probably well, think, probably made money. Do I think ticket sales covered the cost of all the people? Yeah, yes. I, I, I guess that's what I'm saying. Cost the cost of the stage. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. The, the, the production and of, all the, the people. Yeah, the production of the events itself, all the payroll, um, and yeah, whatever it costs to be there at the Sears Center. 
No, I don't think so. I, I I don't think they were able to rent the building, get the stage, the video crew, get all the union people that needed to haul in the stuff, take it out, get all the operators, uh, just for the the way that the build, get all the security, and pay everyone payroll and do all that. Yeah. For half a million dollars, I I j- to put it in perspective, raw costs at least half a million dollars to tape every week. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm sorry. It, raw costs a lot more than that, but the very minimum is going to be half a million every week on just raw. Now, when, and I would say this was comparable to a raw. Yeah. Now, when you add in whatever merch they were able to sell at the two stands that they had in the Sears Center, plus whatever profits they're going to get from pay-per-view sales, then maybe they make some money on this event itself. Plus, plus do you remember what was on the ring apron? Sponsor. Sponsors, Cracker Barrel, Pro Wrestling Tees, um, who else? I, I'm forgetting here for a second. TGI Fridays. Yeah. Yep. And um, there's one more, and I couldn't see it from my angle, but we went over it at lunch, who it was. Yeah, Rich Fan told us, but but we forget. <sighs> yes. But the, the point there being, the sponsors there, you got to figure they were kicking out tens of thousands of dollars, too. Plus... The branding on this. I mean, I made the point on, on our show last week. I made the point several times. It's an infomercial for these stars yeah. that they are the top people in the world. Yeah. In addition, we know Ring of Honor had some role in this. We know New Japan gets a licensing fee and probably a royalty fee for every Bullet Club shirt sold. So, oh, Hot Topic. That's the other sponsor, obviously. Yeah. yeah. So, so Ring of Honor shot the, the broadcast for them and probably had something to do with the pay-per-view transmission. Right. Yeah, and 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 Bullet Club gets a ton of money for New Japan, so New Japan gets something out of it. So it, it's one of those where there's, I'm sure there's some costs that were greatly diminished by the fact that they had sponsors paying for things and whatnot. And then overall, yeah, I think they made money on this deal. They'd be fools not to make money on this deal. The fact that you know they had ten different versions of meet and greets with the wrestlers, so that you could you know smoke cigars and go to a viewing party and go right. do this and go do that. Right. Those are different ways that you can pay guys in, yeah. in other forms. So the Bucks and Cody made money not just from running the show, but from StarCast and, and all these meet and greet events. Yes. I, I Plus plus they upped their, their buzz and their value uh, enormously because this, this event was such a success. Let's pretend the event was a massive failure and they lost half a million dollars. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if each one of them loses $175,000 after all expenses are done, you're going to tell me that next year they can't go to WWE and say $75,000 more onto my contract? Yeah. Uh, Any one of them could erase the debt that this event would cost in a single contract thing, let alone combined. So, no, it, it would be super easy for them to cover the cost even if if i believe they lost money on this and, and i think uh, so it, no it, i don't think they you know with, yeah. with the talk of everybody's contracts uh, expiring cody in the bucks uh, at the end of the year maybe kenny omega uh i think w is in a position where if they're going to get them they're going to have to pay multiple millions of dollars for for each of them i i, I think they have to pay more than a million dollars i don't know multiple millions yeah, um, that, that, more than a million dollars is, is multiple millions yeah. I, well, I should say, I, I think that the value they have is they could they could reasonably expect that money that high would seem un, un-absurd to me. 
And and, and this you event, you never know what WWE is going to say is absurd or not absurd. Because yeah. do I think they'll make more than a million dollars in a year? Yes. Do I think they'll write on a piece of paper? I guarantee you'll make a million dollars a year. I don't know. Because WWE was always loath to do that, mm -hmm. to give anyone a million dollar downside except for their very top guys. However, mm -hmm. I think that the, the game has changed. Yeah. Uh, and uh, do you think that the independent contractor employee issue might be at play here too? Well, obviously, as far as like guys, pay my expenses. They know what they want, right? They know that they want to work so many days a year. And if you're the Bucks and you're beating your body up, you're very particular about how how often you're working. If you're Kenny Omega, you're very particular about how much you're working. And WWE doesn't really write a lot of contracts where they cap the number of days that they're going to use you. And so that's going to be a hard thing to kind of have to put out there to say, here's how I can make us sound like a better deal, is working conditions are going to be the X factor in what it takes to woo this talent, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So m maybe expenses paid? Because uh, we, we think, no. Uh, no? We, we think a Ring of Honor is probably paying some road expenses. Yeah. Do I think WWE will? No. No, I don't. I just don't. Because WWE opens itself up really, really badly if they start paying road expenses for certain guys. Yeah. Because at that point, then you pretty much have your leverage in to say, oh, I'm not an independent contractor. Here's proof. Because hmm. that's one of the things that they can go back to and say, well, we don't pay for your tools. We don't pay for your travel. We don't pay, you know, this way or that way. In certain cases, they pay for the airfare, but not the uh, the cars. Un unless the they're willing the to, food. unless they were willing to just convert everybody to employees anyway. Yeah. But probably probably not happening in Vince's lifetime. Yeah, I mean, we talked about that all on the show before. I got a great article from a, uh, uh, I, I think it's a pro wrestling uh, legal scholar from 2005 talking about independent contractor that I'm, I'm going to be reading through. Actually, my wife was saying she had read the article and she cited it in her paper about trademarks. Um, but you know, there's, there's arguments to be made on both sides, but I don't think WWE would ever jeopardize their entire independent contractor status just to sign the young bucks. Mm -hmm. The young bucks are cool. They're not that cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is not John Cena on the independents. It is cool. They're a big deal. They're not that big of a deal. They're not non-wrestling mainstream celebrities. They're not The Rock coming back. Yeah, they're on, they're on if you could stars, get The yeah. Rock to come back, fifty-two weeks, or Ronda Rousey, if she, you know, who knows what deal Ronda Rousey ended up with? Yeah. My guess is, no matter what, WWE would just say, "Can't we just move it to the money that we give you, and not make it part of we pay for your travel?" Yeah. If they have smart lawyers, that's what they'll keep doing: is say, "We'd rather pay you you five million a year, and you're in charge of buying your own RV." Then we buy you the RV. Yeah. Um, Pro Wrestling Tees says they did, quote, just under 500,000 in T-shirt sales. Uh, interesting point because Pro Wrestling Tees, you wonder, does that include uh, all these indie wrestlers? Does that include, you know, is there any variance of the Bullet Club stuff that is not with Hot Topic that's with Pro Wrestling Tees? Um, but in general, half a million I have no idea what a t-shirt costs. I'm guessing maybe 20 to 25 bucks. So that's probably 20 to 25,000 shirts. Yeah. And if you figure there's 11,000 people there, plus another 3,000 maybe that went to just StarCast but not the event. I'll just come up with a random number. You know, you're thinking about it that it's it's still more than a shirt a person. 
And what that really says to me is, you know, most people are buying two or three shirts if they're buying shirts, which goes back to my original point, which was the live gate versus the merch number. If you figure half a million in t-shirt sales and half a million on live gate, they're pretty much equal. And, and then these, these tickets, as we know, these stuff that people the, probably spent. And then the tickets were way underpriced, which is kind of what they wanted. And, and you know, uh, Rich uh, Thomas made a point to me that, you know, we're getting to the point where wrestling is beginning to compete with vacations. I want to go to Disney. Should I spend it on going to the StarCast weekend or should I go to Disney World? Hmm. Because you're flying, you're staying at a hotel, and you're making it a two or three day immersive experience. Pro wrestling is becoming tourism. traction you're, you're fighting with tourism dollars yeah. yeah um so the viewership for the tv program was interesting 196,000 viewers so 196 uh something gets deleted in the doc oh here it is 196,000 for all in zero hour on wg in america and um the comparison point uh wade keller uh brought this up to me the comparison point was blue bloods the week earlier which did 227,000 uh, viewers. Now, Brandon, have you ever watched an episode of Blue Bloods? I don't know what Blue Bloods is. I believe it's a Tom Selleck uh, uh, procedural about a cop family mm. uh, that might even in, in have one of the Wahlbergs in it. Let's see oh, here. okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's a fictional American police procedural on CBS. Uh, it stars Donnie Wahlberg and Tom Selleck and uh, Jennifer Esposito oh. and uh, other people. Um I have never uh, seen really an episode of it, but it's always on when I'm like flipping through the channels in the I, morning. I, I might have a family member who does like, uh, you know, rigging for for that show or something. That sounds familiar. Okay. Interesting. So 227,000 versus 196, that's a 14% drop in viewers. So some people would say, oh, that's a failure, right? You, you lost viewers against a rerun. But here's where I get excited is that when we look at it by the demographic groups in the P18 to 49, what does P18 to 49 mean, Brandon? People from ages of 18 to 49. Okay. So are pets included? No. Uh, what about uh, like invisible men from the Joy Janela Spring Break Battle Royal? Not not unless you're frauding your, your Nielsen survey. No. Oh, that's a good point. Yes. Uh, so but even that, it's it's a seven... it's a it's not even a, a written survey, right? Could we get these so fast? I, I talked to someone who works with Nielsen once, and it's, it's like it's something you connect to your TV, so it picks up the uh, it picks up some sort of code that's in the broadcast that you not audible to human ears. Well, I told you I used to um, do Arbitron's version of this. Yeah, for, that's for and I, a I radio, wore like a right? little paper thing. Oh, that's right, yeah. And it would pick it up, but I think the Nielsen one is more um, more accurate <laughs> yeah. let's put it that way uh but a p18 to 49 107,000 for all in 45,000 for blue bloods meaning they went up by 138 percent specifically the male 18 to 49 demographic 72,000 versus 25,000 so 188 percent improvement almost tripling that number 25,000 going up to 72 you have and this the in, female, in in raw numbers of viewers not just a rating huh yes i have a raw viewer number and in, fa in fact even raw today, we don't really get ratings anymore. We get usually viewer numbers. We get viewers. What I'm saying is, so it, it, on Showbiz Daily, you, you get a viewership number, which is a number of people who watched, but then the demographics on Showbiz Daily are broken down into into rate into a rating, which I think is like the percentage of the percentage of, of so take this entire demographic group. This is what percentage of that entire demographic group that you got. Got it. 
No, these these I believe are actual actual number of viewers. Okay. Um, seventy two thousand up from twenty five thousand on men, and thirty four thousand up from twenty thousand on women. So you almost tripled the men and doubled the women, eighteen to forty nine. And if I am any pro wrestling company out there, this is what I'm killing for, is to prove that pro wrestling can draw on that 18 to 49 demographic. Mm -hmm. And so the non-18 to 49 demographic dropped from 89,000 down from 182,000 on Blue Bloods. You know, I expect Blue Bloods to be one of those shows that really skews pretty old, you know, the 50, 60, 70 year old type demographic. But here you get a younger demographic coming in. I think this is wonderful numbers for them. Because uh, almost any TV station, if you said, hey, what if I could double your male – I'm sorry, double your female and triple your male audience on this 18 to 49 mm-hmm. versus this other stuff, Yeah, a lot of them are going to say, tell me more. I don't know if they're going to say, yeah, I'm willing to shell out $20 million a year, but they're all going to say, tell me more. And so as a proof of concept, it's pretty good. Now, 200,000 viewers does also show a little bit of the limited um, accessibility of this, right? We're not talking Raw's – Three million. We're not talking SmackDowns two and a half million. We're talking ten percent of that number. Not even ten percent of that. Number. Like six or seven percent. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it, it is a, a niche of a niche, hmm. but it's also WG in America. Not a great time slot for a one-hour one-off show. But but I'll take six percent of whatever Raw or SmackDowns annual uh, payment is from NBC Universal. <laughs> Or Fox. Take, so so if, if SmackDown is getting two hundred five yeah. uh, million, two hundred five million want, times, yeah. like give you six percent, and then you're going to get one hour of that. I'll, I'll take. I'll take one million. Yeah. I'll, well, okay, one hour. Right, divided oh, by fifty two okay. weeks. I forgot to do. Uh, so that'd be one hundred eighteen thousand dollars a week, which uh, would not actually be uh, probably enough to even cover uh, a normal house show. Hmm. But but it would still probably be more than what Brandon Howard Thurston is getting today uh, in his job as a, uh, uh, I'm going to guess, freelance firefighter. Something like that. How much money? $118,000 a week. Yeah, I don't get that much. (laughs) If you got, if you did 152nd of a $205 million SmackDown show divided by two hours times 6%. Yeah, my direct deposit is is, is a little bit less than that. Than $118,000 a week? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, but what if you only need to do like being the elite episodes and then you do like a big event once a month? I mean, do you want me to estimate how much it would cost to run a show like that? Well, sure. let, let's assume that half a million dollars is about the cost of, of taping a show 12 times a year. It's $6 million. So you need to do $6 million. I mean, that's the, the very, very, very simple math that you can subtract out the value, you know, the, the live gates to make that number less but you know ideally your cost of doing television should be offset by your tv rights not having to dip into your attendance at all Mm -hmm. and in fact it should be a lot more than that right you know wwe wants to operate at 40 or 50 percent margin on television not at a uh you know five percent margin or two percent margin yeah so um but anyways i just if you were to ask me ahead of time what should you want for television numbers my answer would be you'd want a really good 18 to 49 demographic. You'd want to show that wrestling can reach young males. And you also want to show that women are not indifferent to wrestling. And I think all of that was said in this WGN broadcast. So if I was Ring of Honor, if I was New Japan, if I was Cody and the Bucks, I think this is a success in your cap that you can bring and shop around in Hollywood. 
as an eyeball test, like we were both there at Sears Center, a lot of men, a lot of men between the ages of 20 and 40, uh, yeah, some, some women, but mostly men, the vast majority were men between the ages we of 20 and 40, We joked about making a, a scavenger hunt yeah. list. And one of them was going to be find two women here by themselves. Yeah. And ironically, like I remember when um, I was sitting at the Starcast Hotel, uh, these two women came up and they were talking to each other and they were going through all the wrestlers they met and oh Marty Skrull did this and this happened and and they were very excited so I I kind of knocked off one of my own uh, scavenger hunt things so uh, I I do actually have to say um, the the perception that it's all men is completely incorrect uh, but I would still say this was still one of these situations where if WWE today is at best one third women. This was at best one fifth women. Yeah, there were even a few women at the Observer Q and A. A few women, a few women even by themselves. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. Uh, I don't mean to stigmatize. It was more just I was thinking I've been going to Observer events for a while, and it is diversifying a little bit here. Yeah. And uh, I, I I like seeing that. I like seeing you know one woman just said I don't know anything about women's wrestling. I don't like WWE's women's wrestling. I don't care for the way that they portray women. They sexualize it very much. And the the storylines are very shallow. Out there, yeah. And and they're like, well, you should check out Stardom. And you know, you could make arguments because there is there's always both sides of of almost any federation out there. But for sure, Stardom presents it as much more of a athletic competition. And uh, it's it's exciting. And same thing, you know, you and I have talked about what is some things that New Japan does. And in some ways, New Japan sexualizes some of the wrestlers much more than uh, even WWE does. The, the men. Some of the men. Some of the yeah. men, yes. Yeah. So. D- WWE, I don't, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's, there's, there's, uh, there, there's like, there's some magazines where like, you know, the, the, the top end New Japan stars is like virtual dates and things like that. Yeah. And of All course, there's the the DDT magazines where like Kenny Omega and Kota Ibushi are like pretty much naked. But yeah, or or you know just like the whole like Juice Robinson getting over to the women thing where they were talking about in New Japan. Yeah, that he was becoming a little bit of a dreamboat. Right. Not yeah. a Technicolor dreamboat. No, no, not, not Jimmy Olsen. That would that would be something totally different. Yeah, it would. Um, but yeah, I I think all in overall, uh, I do think they made money on the deal. I do think that they, uh, in their desire to make this indie credible they turned down some money and what i mean by that is that this could have been co-branded in a lot of different ways and they made the the choice to do that i think they recognized that it would harm the story that this is kind of a diy empire if this was ring of honor all in all over it if this was ring of honor all in it wouldn't have uh, as much buzz it would it would injure their ability to make it seem like it's three guys out there against the world. And, and what is, does that does it, uh, say something about Ring of Honor, like that that they're not a cool enough brand that they could have couldn't have done this? Yeah, if if Cody and the Young Bucks can can do what they've done with being the elite on YouTube, why can't Ring of Honor? Say that again. Why why wasn't Ring of Honor able to do a, a tenth? They're they're gonna in, in Madison Square Garden with the help of New Japan, but why why was Ring of Honor? They have TV, which is something All In by itself didn't have. All In I would say was really promoted in large part by uh, being the elite. 
in large part by the, these stars being in, in big promotions like Ring of Honor and New Japan as well. But uh, Well, I, I would still say, to me, I joked that this weekend was WrestleMania. The first two days was Bullet Club Mania. And to a degree, I think this was Bullet Club Mania. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. this was this was in much more, I think, I, I don't put the indictment so much on Ring of Honor as I put it on New Japan. New Japan's inability to draw 10,000 is more surprising to me mm-hmm. because I would argue almost everything that they were giving you here, you could have gotten it on a New Japan show of the most poignant points. Yeah. I don't think having Jay Lethal there sold a ticket. No. I think the bigger deal was people like Rey Mysterio and who else has been trying to get Rey Mysterio on their show? New Japan. And he has appeared for New Japan. Exactly. Yeah. So to me, this felt much more like a New Japan-esque show where people were kind of saying, this is what I want my New Japan experience to be more like. Yeah, These are true. the cool people from Bullet Club. Here's the hot spot fest act. Here's the, the you know IWGP champion. Here's the uh, inter- the international talent coming in and performing. You yeah. know, that's what that's what excites people. I'm not sure what Pentagon's latest loyalties are as far as whether that would be a conflict to New Japan's relationship with CMLL, but, but almost everyone else. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. But Phoenix I, I was and including Bandito may be affected by that. Like, but yeah. New Japan sells itself also a little bit with you know the fact that they have um, uh, what's what are the lucha shows called? I, I Fantastic Mania. Fantastic Mania, exactly. Where you're you're also selling the idea of saying, well, what isn't it exciting to see international stars in our promotion? Mm-hmm. So I I don't put the blame so much on Ring of Honor as I put it on New Japan, kind of trying to do their Long Beach thing and getting halfway to the mark, you know, drawing sixty five hundred people or whatever to to Cow Palace. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be the only thing that would give us pause when we think about, you know, should all in to be in Southern California or something. Yeah. I think Chicago was a really good place to have it. I think being centralized was actually really smart because if you're on the West coast or the East coast, it's okay to meet in the middle. Yeah. It can be a little bit of a hassle if you have to drive all the way through, you know, whether you're coming from Texas, California or New York, everybody kind of meets in the middle there. Plus people like me, I could just drive there. Right. And you might not think, hey, that's a big deal, but you, there's a lot of population in the Midwest that feels very underappreciated by promotions that are focused on the West Coast and the East Coast, namely WWE and New Japan. Mm. So that's that's my two cents on All In. Um, we're going to have a great interview with Mike here. I hope people stick around and listen to that. Yep. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm your co-host, Christopher Mukigana-Harrington, joined in the state of New York by Mr. Brandon Howard Thurston, and joined in the state of Texas by Mr. Mike. I knew I was going to screw it up as soon as I said it. Pellucci? You got it. Yeah. Mike is a uh, acclaimed author. He recently wrote a terrific piece over at TheRinger.com called All In Just Showed Us the Future of Pro Wrestling, and it's about Cody and the Young Bucks and the show that uh, we all went to. I had a good uh, opportunity to have breakfast with Mike on, um, I think it was Friday, right before the show. And we sat there at a a delicious pancake house in Schaumburg. And uh, you told me about how crazy this weekend was going to be for you. I had no idea how crazy it was going to be for me. And uh, Brandon showed up that night, and it was just a blur. And so we've all had a week to kind of recover. And so uh, I'll just throw it to Brandon for a second. Brandon, are you all recovered from All In? Not nearly. No, I've, I've been wrestling the last couple of days, too. And I went to an XT show as well, which we'll talk about later. But, yes, I'm, I'm slowly recovering, almost there. And then 
Mike, you were uh, you were not only recovering, but then you had to write an article and get back to Austin, Texas. So did that all work out? Uh, it did. It did. I finished this first draft about 10 minutes after I told myself I was going to check out of my hotel. Uh, so I literally did not sleep on Sunday night uh, to make sure that this got filed. Um, ended up being about 6,200 words that I wrote in like two-ish days, two and a half. So it was a, it was a long, long, long week. But uh, it all worked out in the end, and that's what ends up mattering. And, and I wanted to have you on the show, uh, not just because you, you give us a, a nice little plug in the article there with a, a one-liner from me, but more because I thought you had a terrific encapsulation of the weekend. And uh, I, I'm just going to read the one – one of my favorite paragraphs is, is over the next five hours, All In would deliver one of the best wrestling shows in recent memories. Every single type of fan would return home happy. There was a first-time dream match for the purist, Kenny Omega versus Pentagon Jr., a thermonuclear spot fest for the Lucha Libre enthusiasts, the six-man main event, which featured the Young Bucks and Rey Mysterio, nostalgia for the historically inclined a clutch of wrestling legends, plus Jay Lethal reprising his black machismo gimmick with the Macho Man's brother, Lonnie Poffo in his corner, surprises with the Chris Jericho sighting, and the superbly worked four-way women's match, outright violent can someone check on Joy Janela and a healthy smattering of laughs and a powerful testament up to the impact of a well-told story. More on that later. I loved that paragraph because I thought that was was an incredible encapsulation of the weekend. And um, just for you, was was this an easy article to write or was this really a challenge for you to kind of put this all in perspective? Uh, it was, well, first of all, thank you for the kind words, and I'm glad you dug it. Um, I, I really was remiss not to work the penis druids in there from my man, Joey Ryan. Uh, it was, I mean, I knew kind of what I wanted to do going into it. Uh, you know, I kind of had, especially just from talking with a few folks before the show, it became very obvious that people believed, uh, in particular, that being the elite had such a huge impact on this happening, so I knew I needed to do something like that. I knew just from what I saw from the outside, it was very obvious that this show was made possible by collaboration within wrestling companies that wouldn't have been possible even two years ago. Uh, so I knew I had to have something on that. Um, you know, I knew there'd be an intro. I knew there'd be a conclusion. I didn't necessarily know I was going to write as much about Cody as I did until I was in the building and I was there for that match at Nick Aldis. Uh, so I knew I needed to devote something towards that, you know, and that was kind of just sort of, you know, go where the reporting takes you. Um, I would say overall, I mean, it's it's tricky because, you know, that, for me, that's a full-length feature that I might report and write over months or weeks, and I did it in a few days, so that's hard. Um, in some sense, it's, it's a little liberating just in the sense that you kind of have to make sure that perfect isn't the enemy of good. You know, I, I knew no matter what happened, this had to get done and had to get done in a very short amount of time, and I think that let me get out of my own head a little bit. Um, my editor, the great David Shoemaker, you know, he, I kind of, when I filed the first draft to him and I was hadn't slept and so I'm sitting there, I'm like, Oh God, there, there are so many little things in this piece that like, I really need to polish up and clean up and I hope he doesn't hate it. You know? And, and then he, uh, when I got off the plane back in Dallas, you know, he texted me and he's just like, Hey, this is fantastic. And I'm like, Oh, it can't be. Yeah. Are you sure? And then I, after I had slept on the plane for like an hour, which was enough to at least give me some kind of energy. And then when I went and actually looked back at it, he was making and started rereading the draft. It's like, Oh, that's, that's not as bad as I thought it was. Okay. We're going to be fine. Um, <laughs> so it was hard, but it, uh, it ended up being, you know, I, I couldn't obsess over everything as much as I normally do. And I think that ultimately helped clear some of the clutter because it was literally just, all right, you know, you have X number of hours and it's getting done or it's not and not getting it done is not an option. So figure it out and do it. So 
this was not the first time that you've written about some of these characters. You had a, a terrific piece about Cody Rhodes. Um, I just was reading through it again today, and I was really blown away by the the level of detail and access in that piece where you really go into the death of Dusty Rhodes. You go into the relationship between Cody and his dad and, you know, a little bit about his failed dreams on its side with the acting and everything. T- tell me a little bit more about that piece. What what was kind of the genesis for you being able to, to go that deep with Cody and, and almost get that assignment in the first place? Uh, I mean, the real genesis was actually the first piece that I had done, which was on the Young Bucks a couple years ago when I was on staff at Vice Sports. Um, and that started when I literally went up to Matt Jackson at a PWG show and said, hey, I think there's room to do a mainstream story about you guys because I've always been fascinated by them as essentially entrepreneurs. Like their success is, you know, more or less, you know, and I, I think this is how I framed in the Bucks piece, but, you know, it's at a time when a, a company has a bigger monopoly on wrestling than it ever has. And this is especially true, I think, two years ago. Um before, you know, the Bucks essentially made themselves on such a big platform, and Ring of Honor got even bigger, and so on and so forth. Uh, at that point, WWE had a massive stranglehold on everything. And how did these guys essentially create, you know, this business for themselves um, within Monopoly? So I did that story, and that came out really well. You know, Matt, they told me, or I think Matt even tweeted, that, you know, it was the best piece anybody had done on them. And we kind of have always been in touch since then, with Matt in particular. And he always told me, if there's anything yet you know, anybody you ever want to get in touch with, tell me, and I'll be glad to make the instruction. Um, so fast forward, you know, a year, year and a half, and of course, Cody leaves WWE, and I saw the same things that everybody else did about, you know, here's this guy, I mean, Cody wears his heart and sleeve, and that is especially true with his father, and I think it was Colt Cabana's podcast that he did when he, there was an amazing um, bit in there where he just essentially talked about how and it was, this was one that was really raw for him and how independent wrestling was sort of the thing that was the only thing that was helping him get through things because he would feel his father in these tiny buildings. Um, and that's how he would connect to him. And that was his way of catharsis. And I was like, man, I, I don't care if you like wrestling or you don't. This is a story that anybody can relate to if you've lost a loved one. And so I knew I wanted to do that piece. And so I basically reached out to Matt. And, you know, of course, at that point, they were already pretty close much less as close as they are now and so he's like yeah here's his number i told him about you give him a call i called cody and kind of explained what i wanted to do and he was you know i think he was a little apprehensive just because it was it would be a longer undertaking over time but he actually doesn't love talking about his father all the time just because i think you know, and that really that really comes painful. across in the piece there where you have a great line in there where you talk about how Going to a show sometimes can almost feel like it's an ongoing wake because people bring him stories and boots and they say things like, I loved your dad. And he says, I loved him, too. And he was my favorite wrestler. He was my favorite, too. And that is painful, I'm sure, where, you know, it's everyone coming there and just kind of talking about this person who's not in your life and how – you you you're there in the middle there with that kind of strange like well you have emotions about it I have emotions about it and we're here at this my place of work and we're not even talking about me and what I'm doing exactly. here and it's not that I it's disrespectful but it's just that it's tough because you're constantly pushing me back to this place so I'm sure he doesn't love always talking about about Dusty and and that comes across too when you say he doesn't like to introduce himself as the the son of a the son of Dusty Rhodes. He did that, you know, for his one OVW show or whatever. And then kind of after that decided never to do that again. Yeah. And so, you know, the thing that made him say, all right, I want to do it is he felt that 
other people, if the story was told correctly, other people could get something out of it. That it'd be, you know, a message for some other people who had grappled with loss. And so ultimately he agreed to it. Um, and so I started reporting this when I was still on staff advice. Um, I went to, you know, and given everything that I just mentioned and that he had said about how it was the tiny shows where he felt closest to, to Dusty, you know, I basically told him, I was like, I want to go to the smallest Southern show you have. So I went to Newport, Tennessee, which is like population, it says in the piece, but it's like population 7,000 like or something. Yeah. yeah. Okay, 7,000. There you go. Uh, it was, <laughs> it was small. It was real small. And so uh, that's where we talked for the first time. And then we made plans to reconvene uh, at Long Beach for the first G1 show that New Japan did last year. Um, and in the meantime, he, you know, I talked with Brandy at the show, and then he gave me his mom and his sister's numbers. So I had spoke with them. And, you know, I really, for whatever good I did with the story, it doesn't happen if Cody and Teal and their mom, Michelle, don't trust me the way that they do. And they don't open up the way that they do. They made the story, not me. They were the ones yeah, who and- really you know, wanted this to be told because I think they felt, you know, Teal especially had told me she felt that nobody had done it the right way and nobody had really talked with them and heard it from their perspectives. And, you know, that's all I wanted to do is just listen and kind of empathize and kind of communicate their version of events in the way that they felt this happened. Absolutely. And I thought that was why I could tell that this was not someone reporting from afar. This was someone who had a chance to actually talk to the family and get some insight, you know, where they talk about washing the body and things like that. Where you're like, that's very intimate details to share with a, a stranger. And so I, I thought it was just that a part really still stays piece. with me. And, and, you know, 8,000 plus words, too. Um, so you, you must have been working on this piece for quite some time. That one, yeah. I mean, what happened was, you know, so I got laid off along with most of my vice colleagues uh, last July. And so it was kind of a deal where, at that point, you know, you go back to the freelance grind and you're like, all right, well, I need to start making money and I need to start getting work and moving pieces. And, you know, the one saving grace is I was so busy with Vice. I had so many stories that were had a ton of reporting into them already. So I'd actually put it aside for several months. Um, you know, I, I had spoke with Cody Long Beach probably two or three weeks before uh, we all got laid off. And then I didn't touch it again until right around the new year because I was doing so many football and baseball pieces in the fall. Uh, and then that's when I started revisiting it. And then, uh, you know, a few phone, co- you know, a few follow up phone calls just to kind of clarify everything. Uh, most of the reporting had been done by then. And then I wrote in the span of a couple weeks. And you know, and all the credit in the world to David Shoemaker because a lot of people won't, you know, a lot of people wouldn't let somebody writing for them for the first time. Uh, you know, and I should take credit to Sean Fennessy and everyone at the Ringer, you know, who are above David and sort of saying, all right, let's trust this dude to, you know write a wrestling story that's really long because uh, the average, cause, you know, a lot of verticals, a lot of outlets might not trust readers to get it. And my thing was just, look, and I structured it the same way. I think within a few paragraphs, you'll realize this is just about father and son. It doesn't matter what they did. They, they could have been, you know, baseball players or basketball players. The impact would be the same. And so they never gave me a word count. I just, I filed it and we kind of went from there and you know they even i think gave one point said you know like my instinct when you see the length and the word count is to cut but this doesn't really have much fat on it we should just run it the way it is and credit to sean and everybody else over there for saying yeah the story works the way it is right now you know if it's long let's just trust the reader to emotionally attach to this story and we'll see what happens and you know, I don't know their analytics, but I know from what I saw on social media, it seemed like I got more feedback in that piece than anything I've ever done, no matter the sport period. So I think it definitely had an impact. 
And I bring up those other pieces um, because I, I want to kind of emphasize that you went into this knowing who the Bucks were, knowing who young uh, Cody was, mm-hmm. seeing kind of the journey up to this point. So this is not an outsider coming in and kind of saying, hmm, what's this all about? You you had already a little repertoire with them and whatnot. So that weekend, did you actually get access to any of these gentlemen? Because they were so busy, I'm sure, doing every yeah, single thing yeah. under the sun. Right. No, I didn't see them that weekend at all. Um, and I had, and you know, I completely get it just because they were it's the biggest weekend of their lives and it's so busy and they're planning everything. Like I don't begrudge them in the slightest. I had initially pitched this to Matt. I really, what I wanted to do at the beginning was um, Peter King always every year is in some NFL team's draft room for the NFL draft and is basically taking you behind the scenes of this is what it looked from behind the scenes. You know, this is how it felt. That's what I wanted to do. And I ran that by Matt and Matt was like, yeah, that sounds interesting. Let me talk with Cody, you know, and Nick and see what they say. Cody, you know, he told me Cody was interested, you know, let's find a way to get you guys on the phone. And then just, it became, you know, those guys are busy. We never were able to have kind of the full phone call conversation. Essentially what we ended up deciding was Matt was like, let's just get you credential, figure it out from there. And then we never really were able to figure much out beyond that. They just ended up getting so busy. I didn't see any of them that weekend. So I kind of had to improvise. And I said, all right, well, we know there's going to be a story about Allman. And credit again to David and everybody at the ringer for up front, you know, basically saying, look, whatever the access is, we know you're going to tell a good story. Don't freak out too much if, you you know, the access isn't what you thought it would be. Let's just figure out a way to tell a great story that nobody else is going to be doing that weekend. Whatever form that takes, that's fine. And so a lot of what ended up coming of this, I kind of, like I said, I kind of, before I got on the plane to Chicago, just from what I knew and then making sure that I, I caught up on every single B in the elite, every single 10 pounds of gold, every single all us, I was sitting in my living room, you know, binging YouTube videos to make sure I had everything fresh in my mind. I kind of had the general conceit going in, but then when you actually get on the ground, you just sort of have to make it happen. And so everything that you see in that story was a combination of, you know, I, I was credentialed the event, but I didn't have any time with, you know, the Bucks or Cody. I wasn't credentialed for StarCast, but there were plenty of people who were kind of just floating the hallways you could talk to. There was a couple of rooms I ended up sticking into that uh, I wasn't necessarily wristbanded for. But, you know, what's the point of being a journalist if you can't figure out how to creatively get access? <laughs> uh, and so everything that you read is a combination of, you know, Matt and Nick or Matt and Cody's voices in the piece was material that I have left over from the Cody story in the spring. Um, I had, you know, guys like Colt Cabana and Chris Daniels, I had spoken with for other pieces before and I had their numbers. So kind of set that up ahead of time. I talked with Conrad Thompson, few of um, several other people were just, you know, floating in the hallways of Starcast and pulling them aside for five minutes. And there's several of those who that aren't, didn't even make the piece. Like I talked to Jimmy Jacobs, I talked with Matt Cross. Those are guys who I literally just put a tape recorder in front of them and said, Hey, can I talk to you for five minutes? Um, and then the big stroke of luck, which I think you always have to have a little luck with something like this, was I knew I was going to write about uh, Marty Skrull's elite karaoke thing because I find it to be, and Marty himself finds it to be totally ridiculous that like any the biggest example of this being the elite phenomenon is there were, and I put dozens because I didn't know what the exact number was, and then I saw the being the elite afterwards, and it looked like there were probably a couple hundred people in this room paying money to you know sing karaoke with Marty Skrull. And Marty Skrull is, you know, just basically playing a terrible, terrible singer. Like this, that's how big of a, this is making money. So I knew I was going to write about that, but I didn't know, you know, (laughs) until the day of the show when they basically, the extent of media was they did a press conference and they just brought out random people into the room, but we didn't know who it was or when it was. 
you know, by a stroke of a luck, one of those people was Marty and he took like four questions and I made sure to ask a question, you know, the question about the karaoke thing. And he gave me a great answer. Uh, that was just, you know, thankfully the journalism gods or wrestling gods put the right person in the right room for me. Cause I wouldn't have gotten to him otherwise he was as busy as all the rest of them. So that's kind of how it came together. It was, it started as one idea. And when it didn't become that idea, I just improvised and what, you know, worked hard and what ended up coming of it was just the result of whatever I had to work with. So what, when you say I was credentialed for the all in show, where were you sitting then? Were you sitting mm-hmm. behind the cameras near kind of where Meltzer and Alvarez were? Were you with the, uh, the big wigs from, you know, I'm sure, uh, the, the government sent down some of the highest officials to watch such an important show. <laughs> they threw, so yeah, when Rahm Emanuel's crew or something. Obviously, yeah, me and Rom. I know I was with John Mayer. John Mayer and I were kicking in front row. Uh, <laughs> they put all of the all of the media. We were downstairs initially in this kind of bunker press room area, um, including like Meltzer and Alvarez and all that. And then when we got off the elevator, I think they had you know Meltzer and Brian and Wade. I think they had their own suite or something like that. Um, they put the rest of the media in a different suite, uh, which sounds more glamorous than it is. The the, the Sears Center is a, a bit of an old building, so it was kind of amounted to, you know, it was an area that has tables and you know a counter in the back and that was kind of it so they i mean it was it was definitely a great spot to see the show from because it was probably it was lower level and it was pretty much center right by the ring um so it was not like right by proximity but at least your viewpoint was it was i would say you know top of the lower bowl more or less um so so yeah so so we were we we were down in that area so Dave always talks about, you know, when he's at the UFC media area, how sometimes uh, the journalists are are very impartial and sometimes, you know, there's a little bit of favoritism going on. What was happening in the media box for the whole show? Were people marking out? Were people just kind of being passive and taking notes? Did you did you see participation from people here? Were they chanting rest in penis with everyone else? <laughs> uh, I think it was it was a mix. There were definitely some folks who kind of were getting into it and there's some folks who want to yell and definitely some folks who did i mean there were some who i felt like were more quiet i mean my approach and you know and this is just it's hard for me to really say how wrestling media normally works because i don't consider myself wrestling media i only do a couple wrestling pieces a year if that so i'm coming from it from a traditional sports perspective so i'm making sure that i am you know shutting my mouth and i'm just you know i'm joking around with the guy next to me but i'm at a work you know so i have my laptop open the entire time and to the extent that I could, because it, you know the crowd was so hot and the, you know the whole building was so loud, I'm trying to make sure that I'm writing whatever I can in between because I know that I'm going to be so screwed over the next two days if I don't do any work for the entire show. Uh, so that was my approach, and that's just the approach that you know I has been drilled into me from covering mainstream regular sports all the time. You know, just sit down, be objective, and all that. Uh, there were some folks who were definitely getting into it, um, no doubt. So it was kind of it was kind of a mix. I, I would say the majority of people were probably more along the lines of, you know, being more impartial or not as objective. But there are some folks who are getting hyped about it. And, you know, I, I don't know to what degree. I, I think people, I, you know, I saw on Twitter the ensuing debate over the next few days about how wrestling media should act. And I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's my opinion necessarily say one way or the other. I just knew what my what felt right for me. And so that's what I did, even though, like, you know, a very good friend of mine and his wife were, you know, in the crowd in the stands. And I told him afterwards, I was like, man, I wish I was just sitting there drinking beer with you guys. I could have enjoyed all this because it was one hell of a show. Yeah, I think um, that that I've been seeing a little bit of that soul searching going through wrestling Twitter here. And a lot of people kind of 
trying to make the rules up as they go along. And, and of course, I do think that there's some pretty good standards that have been set by media and other uh, fields that, you know, you can kind of build upon and say, well, this is how you're expected to act in these other venues and sports, whether it's an artistic, you know, going to see a play or whether you're going to see a football game. There's some some amount of decorum that is, is kind of been established over the years and also in terms of what you're expected to kind of do as part of your uh, observation and participation in the show. I would say uh, I came to the show. I watched it like a fan. I chanted. I I, I, I clapped. I cheered. Whereas Mr. Brandon Howard Thurston, who's probably going to unmute himself now that he's heard his name, uh, he he was was like a statue the entire night where he would stand up to see and he would sit down and he would clap three times at the end of a match but uh, uh i don't think i heard a single cheer or cry from him as he studied the entire events isn't that right brandon yeah well i, I don't know I, I feel like i don't know as, as like a, a wrestler i feel funny like freaking out but uh but yeah I, I, st- I stood up a lot the people in front of us stood up a lot so i had to stand up a lot but no i had a great time and i enjoyed the show a lot we uh, uh, we rode the elevator down, and this guy gets on the elevator, and he's wearing like a, a kind of a red lucha shirt, and so it was unusual because everyone, of course, is dressed in black, and so I said something oh, yeah. to him like, "Oh, you know, you you no no black shirt today," uh, and he's like, "No, no, not not right now," and he had his suitcase with him. And he's just like, what are you guys up to? And and Brandon answered and said, oh, we're going to do this. And then we're going to go to the show. And then I was like, what are you going to be doing? He's like, oh, I got to I got to go to the show. Uh, yeah, it's like one call, call times like, oh. at noon. Uh, he was going to be in the Battle Royal later. Yeah. Yeah. It turned out to be all all ego. Ethan Page. Right. Yes. Yeah. I did not ah, recognize him. And it was, it was all ego. And it was it was really idiotic on my part because I, I've been in enough wrestling locker rooms to know that everyone has a suitcase and he was a big guy getting on the elevator and I don't know why I didn't yeah, put two and tall. two together. But yeah. we were in the other hotel. We weren't in the we weren't in the, the, the Starcast hotel. So I guess just in my mind I didn't think any of the wrestlers would be staying there. So right, I, right, I don't know right, why I didn't yeah. think of it, but it was just rather comical when I was just like, what are you doing today? He's like, well, I'm going to be on that show you just mentioned. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So it, there are times when, I, when you know, uh, I'm completely out of it. And that was one of them. But, yeah, I had a great time at the show. I really enjoyed it. And just like you said, I don't think if I had had taken if I wasn't taking notes uh, contemporaneously, I would not have been able to remember. And I still don't remember all the things that happened and how it felt and what it was like. Uh, were you right. surprised by the reaction of any of the matches, specifically the Cody Nick match? Was that maybe a little hotter than you even thought it was going to be walking in? Uh, I mean, yes, mostly because that was one of the hottest crowds I've ever heard. I mean, the, and I, that's what, that was the biggest thing I was trying to capture. And that was, you know, on Sunday night when I was writing the piece, you know, I, I talked to Shoemaker for a bit uh, and I was just like, you know, I told him, I was like, that's the section that I'm, I'm, I got through the setup and then the actual match, like I didn't take notes, but like, I didn't know at that point I was like, I got to figure out how I'm going to describe this and attempt to capture this because it felt different. And I, you know, I wrote this, but it felt like the urgency of it. It felt like something from a different time. And what made me think of that is, you know, if you go back, and I think it was a few, few weeks ago, I was, I was hanging out with my dad, and we were watching like some old matches on the network, and you see how hot, like just how crazy those crowds were, and it's really just any sporting event from like I don't know the '80s or the '70s. You see the crowd, and it just feels like they're so into it because there's nothing. I think it's just that there's you know there are no cell phones, there's nothing to distract them. You were there, and you were 100 percent present, and everything means so much. Uh, because there are only so many things that can bring the world together at that point in time. And this crowd really felt like that. So I think for me, when I think of, you know, what shocked me, you know, you got to give 
those guys, you got to give David Lagana and everybody at NWA so much credit because this was a match that, you know, nobody cared about the NWA, NWA title a year ago. And then to see what it became where people were so into it, um, you know, that I guess I knew it was going to get a reaction. I didn't know it would feel quite the way it felt, where it felt like a special match. Um, and the reality of it was like, if you actually watch the match, it was fine. Uh, you know, it was probably it was probably a bit overbooked. They didn't need to give D, you know they didn't need to maneuver so much to give DDP a spot to do a diamond cutter in the middle of this world championship match that was supposed to feel like a classic. But it didn't really matter because it just totally the story that they were telling and the urgency that it had it all transcended the individual parts of the match, and that's how you know you have something special. So I would say that was that was a big one. I mean, I'm trying to think. You know, I, I knew that they'd be they'd be hot to begin with and they kind of reacted, I think that way for, for most matches. Um, so I'd say, yeah, in terms of strictly crowd reactions, that was the one that surprised me because and I knew they'd get into it. I didn't realize that they would get that into it um, or that people would make it feel that way, but, but they did. And I think some of it too, is the fact that they, you know, this is something that I, I noticed it, it was, it was after Lagana had told me, you know, don't, we're not promoting this like a wrestling match, call us a fight. They didn't expressly say boxing match per se. Um, he mentioned Mayweather and and uh, and Connor, um, yeah, Connor McGregor, yeah, yeah. And so then it kind of clicked. Of just I was looking and I was like, oh, these are all things that people do in a boxing match. If you have your way and you come to the ring with your entourage, you have Earl Hebner do a very, you know, uh, I don't know if they told Earl that Earl had to talk and do like a do like a, a Judge Mills Lane sort of speech. It, you know, after the after the ring announcements, but they did that, um, and so it felt like a different type of event than your normal wrestling match. I thought that was genius the way they promoted it because it felt bigger in a sense, and all of these gambits together created this match that felt very special. Absolutely, and and uh, Brandon and I had done predictions before the show, and uh, I I made some rather ludicrous predictions about Nick retaining. And I just remember like a minute into the match, Brandon just looked at me and he said something like, uh, do you want to change your vote now? Because uh, we we're just like, I think there would have been a riot. I think there would have been a riot if Cody didn't win the NBA title. That the night. crowd would have turned their back for sure. It was like, oh, there's no way this is not going down that one going down with Cody walking away with that belt above his is uh, around his waist tonight. So that was yeah, that was a really interesting match. And, and I've said this probably in every conversation about the show I I have done, but just the juxtaposition of that match followed by the Adam Page Joey Janela match with the Joey Ryan return, the Penis Druids, and I was like, this is the vision of the Bucks and the vision of Cody coming together and yeah. like hitting each other face on, and the fact that that crowd was willing to basically accept both. Now, over the past week here, I've heard more people mm-hmm. groan and say, oh, I didn't like it. It would maybe embarrass to be a wrestling fan and this and that, but uh, oh. I th- at, in the arena. All I can say is I did not sense resentment and fear and and doubt. It felt like acceptance that, yeah, that's wrestling and this is wrestling and this is all in the same universe. Exactly. Even though you could really feel this was the Bucks kind of crazy wrestling vision. This is Cody's classic wrestling vision. And yet you can put them side to side. And this group of people was willing to accept both. And I thought that was meaningful because you do have that challenge where like, yeah, ECW, I know you used to watch ECW back in the day, uh, uh, you know, they mm-hmm. would be like, oh, we're going to do some lucha and we're going to do some hardcore. And people were like, I'm into this. I get it. It's both things. Right. But it's sometimes hard to have a promotion where you're doing a little bit of A and a little bit of B and people say, oh, this is all part of my world. This isn't like I'm just here to see the old guys or I'm just here to see the uh, the cruiserweights. I, I really appreciated that about the show. Um, what were 
what what got cut from the piece or what was something maybe you, you would if you had more time to work on the piece about the weekend maybe you would have gone in more depth maybe more about starcast and kind of whether that was what whether that turned into be what it ended up being or or what what would you have wanted to focus on um i think some of it would be just what you said about delving into some more of the actual show. You know, I knew that I wasn't going to have any time to really do that. And that's really why that paragraph that you wrote off the top, that's why I threw that in there of, all right, well, I have to describe something about the show. So we're just going to get this over with off the top. Uh, because chances are anybody reading the story already knows what happened in the show, right? So, uh, you know, I would have loved to have, I guess, focused a little more on that. I mean, I, the Joey Ryan thing to me, uh, I, I loved it. You know, for a lot of reasons you said, the wrestling could be so many different things. And you know, if you didn't like one match on the card, well, chances are you probably liked a few other matches on the card because there was so much range and so much overlap. Um, but, you know, I think the Joey Ryan thing, would, if I was going to write about another match, it probably have been something related to that just because, you know, the, they're, they definitely left a few things, a few bullets in the chamber for all into whatever the next super show is, starting with a Joey Ryan, Adam Page match. That will be the thing that they will put on the next card. Um, and if there was anything that being the elite really built to, uh, and then took it over the top, it was that. You know, that was their big, long-running storyline. Like, yeah, the last month or so, they bo- they put in more with, you know, Marty and uh, Okada, for instance, but this was something they had been running with for so long. Um, you know, but besides that, I mean, it's funny, when you asked, I know earlier this week when we were talking, you, you mentioned you were asking me this, so I went back through all my notes, and I was like, you know, I don't really, I think I got a lot of it, um, and a lot of what I really wanted to tell. I think it was pretty much mostly in the piece, uh, except for maybe the, the PCO, I really wanted an excuse to reference the bizarre show that PCO put on uh, the first night in the hotel lobby. No, oh, no, okay. it was at the hotel lobby. Uh, yeah, he was just say set up a stage right in the middle of the Hyatt. Uh, and I can only imagine, and I, I believe he has done this show before, and it, it's super impressive and awesome. Uh, but I can only imagine if you are a normal Hyatt resident coming up <laughs> the weekend and there were some of those there were yeah, there was this group of there was a group of like a, a singapore air stewardesses that were like staying at the hotel and i was like oh god these people oh, yeah so imagine imagine you are one of these singapore air stewardesses you are confused by a lot of things justifiably so but imagine your reaction if you are walking the hall circa about i don't know five fifteen on a thursday afternoon and you see a very large very small french canadian man uh, getting electrocuted with a car battery or stapling a picture to his chest and telling his friend to throw darts at said picture into your chest. Oh or you uh, have somebody put a tennis ball in your mouth and you chew through it. Imagine what your reaction might be with this out of context, because quite frankly, even within relative context, I was still a little uh, perplexed by why this was a thing. So I really wanted a reason to reference uh, the great PCO in there, and I did not have a chance, but uh, hell of a show, guys. Hell of a show. Wow. And um, uh, question number two, uh, in an earlier version of the piece, misstated Colt Cabana's years of experience at 16 instead of uh, their true number of 19. Uh, the genesis for that correction was that through Twitter, did Colt reach out to you and demand a retraction? <laughs> it was It was not a demand. He was more giving me shit because he, he knows me. That was literally, I was, it was probably like 3.45 in the morning. I was very tired. I was going through Wikipedia and I went through the summary uh, early career, and I see 2002, when in fact, on the right rail, there is debut date something 1999. That was, yeah, uh, yeah that was, you know, that's on me. That's a, that's a goof that I should have caught, and I didn't, and fair play, man. No, no, I, I, w- I wasn't trying to pick on it. I was just kind of curious about, oh, you know, fair, who, fair who reaches cool. out to catch these things. 
Um, and then the other one I wanted to ask is is when you and I had a conversation, you told me one thing that you're you're covering, um, and and maybe I'm talking out of school here, but uh, partially by choice, partially by necessity, is uh, e gaming and esports. Uh, just because they're like you're the young mm-hmm. guy that gets it, uh, why don't you cover this? And so uh, tell me a little bit about <laughs> what what's happening with that, and did you see any uh, any correlation or non correlation to this crowd? Um, yeah, I mean, so I started covering esports when my my editor of Vice Sports, uh, the great Jorge Arangure, uh, kind of reached out to me. He was like, "Hey, we want to do more esports stuff. You play video games. How about you edit our esports vertical?" And I was like, "Well, those aren't quite the same, but yeah, let's do it." Um, and so I kind of started learning about that world, and I think the overlap, you know, and I, it's the same deal with that as it is with wrestling for me, which is sort of. You know, I consider myself a pretty traditional mainstream sports journalist who happens to have a couple of niches that most don't, and I think those two are becoming that. Um, and if there's an overlap for me, it is the fact that uh, I think the you know the media in each of those spheres covers things very differently than a traditional wrestling audience or than a traditional mainstream sports audience. And because of that, um, you know, I don't think there are as many people who, and I don't think this is anyone's fault. I think this is just, I think so much of the background in both of those worlds has been news gathering and information breaking and, uh, or analysis relating to the craft of what they're seeing. And it's not as much necessarily tell me a feature story, but you have fans from those mediums who really appreciate, uh, you know, and have a, this thirst for well-told stories about the people in there. And so for me, uh, in the case of esports, this is you know whether whether people like it or not, that's where things are going. It's it's only going to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, uh, in my case, you know I, I I don't necessarily I wouldn't say I'm a huge fan of a particular esport. Whereas I I love professional wrestling. I have since I was little. So that's different on my end. But the commonality is you know find a way to go into this and tell a story that can bridge the gap between the hardcore fans and you know the more casual audience. And do it in a way that both find accessible and enriching and do it with a, a good storytelling and narrative around that. So I've tried to take that same approach. I started doing wrestling before I started doing esports, but you know, I did an esports thing in the spring. Now I'm working on another one right now. And so it's kind of the same, I guess, ethos of this particular area within the existing media isn't as robust. So let me see if I can work my way in there and add my own little piece to, you know, a scene that already has, in both cases, already has plenty of people who are doing great work in there. They're just not necessarily focusing on this particular genre of journalism. And our last question, and I'm going to let you go, uh, all in two, where do you think it is? Los Angeles. Interesting. I would be shocked if it is not Los Angeles. Matt has talked so many times about how, um, and this is all public stuff, Like he talks a lot about how they want to do something in Southern California, Southern California is, you know, both, both, you know, both the Bucks live in SoCal. Cody has lived in SoCal, the big wrestling scene. Um, they have multiple buildings they could do it in. Namely, I think the forum in Inglewood would be the one that if they were going to target, that'd be my guess. Matt has promoted, Matt and Nick have promoted, run their own promotion out there. A lot of their friends, like, you know, Joey Ryan lives out there. The SCU guys live out there. Um, all you know the base of the pwg audience that will absolutely a hundred percent go to a show they promote is out there it would i would shock me if it is not los angeles next time 
Well, you heard it here, WrestleNomics Radio. This has been interview with uh, Mike Pellucci. He's writes for The Ringer. He just had a fantastic piece all about All In, showing us the future of pro wrestling. The biggest independent show of all time took place on Saturday. Here's what it means that the wrestlers are created, that the fans who cheered it on, and the industry it's disrupting. He's written a number of other great pieces for Vice Sports and for The Ringer and uh, many other mainstream publications. So please support him. Check him out. And where can they find you on Twitter if they want to give you some feedback? <laughs> At Mike Likes Sports, all one word, because I'm not going to expect any of you to spell my crazy Italian last name. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for making time, and uh, really glad we had a chance to get those delicious pancakes in Schamburg. Absolutely, man. Next time we're in the same place, we'll, we'll go for round two. Sounds wonderful. Talk to you later. Bye-bye, Mike. Thanks, guys. <laughs> hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to WrestleMics Radio. We've got uh, WrestleMics Premium on our Patreon. If you go to WrestleMics.com. What's on that? I went to an NXT show, and I'm, I'm going to talk about my experience at the NXT show here in Buffalo, kind of what it was like uh, just a few days after going to All In, which had 10,000 people in it. But but the NXT show was cool, too, and it was sold out, so we'll talk about that. And I, Then how'd you get a ticket if it was sold out? Well, I'm co-opted media, so you know we, we get access now. We do get access. Brandon's got a video, Heart Intensity in the Cell, talks about cardio from the wrestling school from grapplers anonymous check it out mm-hmm. uh really good content there uh, plus a man with a crazy looking beard mm-hmm. um mookie talks attendance numbers i go in depth about some of uh, the studying i've been doing about wwe over the last 12 months and if I you're a wrestling aggregator this is this is your your week to sign up free content free five dollars a month wrestlenomics.com and uh we also talk a lot about what does it mean daniel bryan resigning with wwe uh, kind of lost in the hysteria of All In. Yeah. Uh, Mookie had to eat a uh, No Joy Oh Boy It's Soy yeah. bar. You can find uh, that on YouTube. You can find the video of it on YouTube. He enjoyed it. And uh, Oh, so much. Yeah, let's not spoil it. But go check but I that lost out. A, I lost a bet to you, but you and I have a bigger bet about the uh, once a year where we make our predictions. And one of our predictions is, is Daniel Bryan going to stay with the Fed. And uh, I've been saying yes, you've been saying no. Find out who's right. <laughs> yes. Breaking news. Uh, and uh, a lot of other good stuff. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Mokigana. You can find Brandon on Twitter at Brandon Thurston. I did a guest spot on Wade Keller's podcast this week. Uh, that's at uh, Wade Keller Pro Wrestling Podcast, WKPWP, where me, Wade Keller, and Zach Haydorn uh, talk all about All In, the economics of All In, predictions about All In 2, and other things. Uh, Mookie's whole infomercial theory is laid out in depth there. There's a free version of the show. You can go over to Spreaker.com. And then there's a Torch VIP version of the show, which is an hour longer and has more content. And I had a really good time. We uh, very much enjoyed this weekend getting to meet up with the Torch guys, getting to go to a Q&A with the Observer guys and talk to them a little bit as well. And uh, we look forward to the next time that all the minds meet in the wrestling media so we can kind of work out the whole Illuminati system, decide who we're going to push this year, how many stars the rating system is going to go up to. We're going to you know, create an artificial cap on stars yep. and uh, get a little bit more uh, judicious about the way we hand them out. We're going to meet in a dark, smoky room and label decisions. Everywhere, I'm sure. That's and, uh, what Cody Rhodes in the corner with his cigars. Sounds good. Sounds good. Bye-bye, everybody.